You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so, shall, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would take your word and cause it to bear fruit among us. Help us to be a people who believe every word that you've spoken, who seek to obey every word that you've spoken, and who count as precious every word that you've spoken. Come now and speak to us from your word and then feed us at this table. In your name we pray, amen. We are going to spend the next few weeks considering uh, a much neglected doctrine in the church. Um, And and the reason we're going to do so is um, because it's glorious and it's beautiful and it is the grounds on which we worship on a Sunday, it's the grounds on which 
um, we understand the, the future that we are stepping into to be one that is hopeful and, uh, and it is foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is right now. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks speaking about, considering, reflecting upon the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Um, this is a, a doctrine which answers one fundamental question, one theological problem presented to us by the confession that we made last week, namely about the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, and it answers a theological problem posed by that reality. And that question is, where is the body of Jesus? Since the time of origin, um, this question has plagued the church um, with confusion, with uh, vast misunderstandings that has um, affected the way that we consider and conceive of what Christianity is, um, what the meaning of our everyday lives is, um, and how we're, we're to think about the future um, because we, we've taken the origin's answer to that question and as it's persisted, his answer, throughout the history of the church, it's led to confusion, it's led to gross misunderstandings about the meaning of life, the meaning of drinking a cup of coffee, as I was reflecting on this morning, um, the meaning of marriage, the meaning of our children, um, the meaning of what Christianity and the church actually is, um, even down to what it is that that we're up to on a Sunday morning? What should we be seeking? Um, if you're trying to measure a Sunday morning and try to figure out, is it, was it successful? Um, how do you assess whether it was successful or not? Well, it all, largely all rests on the grounds of um, this surprising, admittedly odd question, where is Jesus' body? Now, the answer to that question over the years has, over the centuries, um, has varied. Uh, you, you have downright heretics who've simply said um, that Jesus never actually bodily came out of the grave. Um, he spiritually came out of the grave and he has spiritually ascended into the heavenlies and exists now with the Father. Um, but that, that, um, that confessional heresy, a denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, has actually worked its way into um, a lot of the ways that Christians think about um, the resurrection of Jesus. Now we may celebrate and sing loudly that Christ has risen and believe that his body came out of the grave, um, but that doesn't carry over oftentimes in terms of we, how we think about Jesus' existence now. Um, we tend to think of Jesus in spiritual terms um, as though what actually took place at the ascension was that, yes, Jesus' body came out of the grave, but his ascension in the presence of the Father was somehow merely spiritual. And that Jesus exists kind of as a ghost in the presence of God. And this is fundamentally a denial of the creed that we just read. And we said that he was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father. Um, that, that there was no separation between the body of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. Um, and I want to talk about just for a minute before we jump into three texts this morning. I promise it won't be three sermons. Um, but I want to introduce three texts to you today that we're going to dive deeper into in the coming weeks. Um, um, how kind of this skewed understanding, maybe even not conscious skewed understanding of the ascension of Jesus has actually worked its way into how we conceive of and understand Christianity today, um, and uh, not the magazine, um, but 
uh, <laughs> um, our own particular Christian lives today, and even how we've conceived of heaven itself and where we're all going to end up. Um, you see, many times when we think about Christianity and what does it mean to live before God, what, what does faithfulness to God look like, what does righteousness look like, um, we posit it in terms that accord with a wrong understanding of the ascension of Jesus. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, people talk about their relationship with God. They talk about uh, what it means to walk faithfully before God primarily in terms of their kind of internal life, merely how they feel, um, or for those of us in this room who are reformed, how they think. Um, Merely thinking about um, understanding what does it mean to live faithfully before God, primarily in terms of we measure our spiritual life in terms of how do we feel? Do we feel hopeful and happy about God? Or for those of you who are mind-oriented, Have I thought accurate, right thoughts about God today? Um, In other words, Christian spirituality spirituality becomes very non-physical. It becomes um, largely unrelated to, except for maybe in the most bare bones ethical terms. Um, It has little to do with my relationship with my wife, how I treated her today. Um, It has little to do with how I raise my kids or what I do in my job day in and day out. Did I do my job well and with skill? When we measure a worship service, when we consider what we're doing when we gather on a Sunday, it primarily has to do with some internal reality going on in our feelings and in our head. You see this reflected in a lot of modern worship styles where um, worship is approached not in a room with windows and light and people, but they do everything they can um, to darken the room and fill it with like lasers and smoke, um, largely to make you forget the fact that you're in a room with people um, so that your worship before God is not about a church, it's not about a community, it's not about um, people singing songs together and hearing scripture together and taking communion together, but rather it's how can we create an environment where you feel as isolated as possible, where you can feel as focused on your own feelings as possible um, so that uh, you, you can have a real spiritual experience. All of this is stemming and is connected to a wrong understanding of where Jesus' body is. If you don't answer that question correctly, if you answer it as it's been answered, as it was answered by Origen, and as it was answered by Boltman and Schleiermacher, and and is answered... um, maybe not consciously, but at least subconsciously, by by the vast majority of how evangelical Christians have thought in our day, then the physical world, how you eat and how you drink and how you care for your children and how you do your work throughout the week, it becomes subtly maybe at first, but then extensively separated from how we think about where we live and where God is and where Jesus is and how we're to live faithfully before him. Christianity in that, in that, in that realm gets reduced to a kind of Gnosticism, a, a kind of seeing uh, the, the body and um, the physical life as a necessary evil that we have to endure until we can finally be freed of these physical shackles and soar in heaven. 
um, as ghosts. This is a terrible misunderstanding of Christianity. And it leads to a kind of weak, tepid Christianity that can't change much. And so I want us to reflect first on the story that's laid out for us in the book of Acts um, as Luke reflects on it. Then I want to go to two different places in in Scripture. Um, The first will be from Daniel 7. I'd love for you to have your Bibles open, um, flipping to these places. And the second will be Revelation chapter 5. I think what we read about in in Acts chapter 1 is the same thing that we're reading about in Daniel chapter 7 and the same thing that John reported to us in Revelation chapter 5. Um, And so where we're going to go today is first to reflect on this biblical narrative. Um, What's going on? The ascension of Jesus, the bodily ascension of Jesus into the presence of the Father, all authority in heaven and earth being handed over to him as um, the Son of Man. Um, who, who will execute God's plan, God's purposes, and God's desires on the earth. Um, it is a, it, it's not just an isolated story um, from Acts chapter 1 that we're kind of trying to invest a whole lot of theological meaning in. It's actually a story that runs the full gamut of Scripture um, and is for us a story about um, here is Adam, here is the true man actually achieving, accomplishing, being exalted to the place that man was created to be exalted to. Um, In other words, he does what none of us were able to do. He does what Adam himself was unable to do. He does what David himself was unable to do. Jesus actually accomplishes such that at his name, every knee should bow and worship. So first, we're going to look at that biblical narrative with some measure of detail. And then I want to draw up, and just in an introductory way, um, a handful of theological truths that then flow out from this biblical narrative. And attached to those truths are going to be the beginnings of some application for us, which I anticipate we'll dive deeper into in the coming weeks. Anyone have any protests? To any, I'm just joking. Um, that's where we're going to go. I was about to say, was that okay? But um, I don't really care if you think it's okay or not. Um, I'm just going to do it, and we'll see how you feel later. Um, so let's look at this story. Jesus has just come out of the grave. One of the interesting things about Luke, um, Luke and Acts is uh, really supposed to be two volumes of the same book. Um, at the end of Luke, it ends with the ascension of Jesus. In the book of Acts, it begins with the ascension of Jesus. That should tell us something about the narrative that Luke is trying to articulate or set before us um, from his gospel into the book of Acts. Again, you can't see this, um, these two books as separate books, but really as two volumes of the same story, the same narrative. Um, They're not meant to be read in isolation. They're meant to be read together. And so when you recognize that and you begin to see volume one ends with the ascension and then volume two begins with the ascension you can begin to understand how central the theme of the ascension of Jesus is to Luke it's foundational to his understanding of the mission of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus um, and the goal of everything that Jesus has done Um, his journey to Jerusalem which is where we began I don't, it was like a month ago now, um, in the book of Luke, is ultimately a story about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to die, yes, to be raised from the dead, yes, and ultimately to be raised from the dead and to ascend 
into the heavenlies where he reigns now. The rest of the book of Acts is the effects of his ascension. Let me say that again. As we hear all of these stories in the book of Acts about the pouring out of the spirit of God upon the church in Acts chapter two, of the gospel being preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, of Gentiles, um, terrible Gentiles, and you guys are the worst, um, me too, um, uh, of them coming to worship Jesus, of the church being established and the spirit of God being poured out everywhere, even Rome. For Luke, those are the effects, the direct effects of what he unfolds for us in Acts chapter one with the ascension of Jesus. In other words, they're not just random stories. Instead, we should think of church planting and missions and the pouring out of the spirit of God upon the nations of the earth as the direct result of Jesus ascending to the right hand of God. So in Acts chapter one, you have a story. It's a strange story. Um, For for many, many decades, uh, it was a strange story, particularly for the scientifically minded. Um, Lots of actually, has actually been written on, could this have actually happened? Which is a strange way to approach any text in the Bible. Um, Instead, we should listen to this story and see what happens? Jesus is raised from the dead, and then he spends 40 days with the apostles teaching, particularly teaching them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In verse 8, he promises that something's about to unfold, that something is about to happen. He is going to pour out his spirit upon them. And then he ascends. He ascends in a, on a cloud, riding on a cloud into the heavens until the disciples can't see him anymore. Then angels appear to them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I feel like Luke makes all the angels kind of brutal. Like in the, in the uh, resurrection narrative, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Like they kind of, you can, like maybe for a while they planned the question, like this is going to be funny. People will tell this story forever, like forever and ever. And they'll, they'll get our kind of snark as we ask the disciples these questions. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Aha. Um, two, why are you guys staring up at the sky? <clears throat> um, he's going to return in the exact way that he's departed. But it's important to kind of imagine this scene and it's important that you imagine it physically. Jesus is standing with them. He's been teaching them. He's been eating with them. He's given them, given them pointers on, on how to fish and where they're going to catch um, the most fish. Uh, he's been eating that fish. He, he's been with the disciples physically. His resurrection was not some sort of spiritual resurrection where, where he... Um, They just started thinking like warm thoughts about Jesus and how it must be nice to be free of this mortal coil. Um, No, they're actually eating with him, walking with him, talking to him. Now, there are certain things that are odd, right? Like he walks through a door, not opens the door, but um, John tells us a story about Jesus just 
coming and appearing before the disciples, being, just showing up. There he is, the door's locked, and he comes in. We, we, we have stories of Jesus walking along the disciples on the road to Emmaus and them not being able to recognize him. Um, he, there, there, there's something different going on, um, but, but that difference is not that Jesus is unphysical. Um, I, I think that's why the gospel writers actually place such an emphasis on the fact that he ate fish with them. Um, he's really alive. He's really eating. He's really talking. He's not just talking in their heads or in their emotions. He's speaking to them. He's eating physical fish, hopefully well-prepared fish, with a little lemon and the whole thing. Um, but he is physically present with them. And now um, they go and they're on the mount and Jesus ascends. He, he moves up. He, he goes somewhere else bodily. So to answer the theological question or the the problem that we posed at the beginning of this sermon, where is Jesus' body? Well, it has ascended his fully human body has ascended and is now in the presence of the Father, actually seated at the right hand of the Father on high. The baseline Christian confession is not that Jesus, the idea, has received authority and sits at the right hand of the Father. The Christian confession is that Jesus, all of Jesus, the Jesus that did all of those miracles, the Jesus that flipped over tables in the temple, the Jesus that preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Jesus that was born in a manger, the Jesus that the shepherds came to visit, the Jesus um, who... uh, kept hanging out in the temple and teaching all of the teachers uh, while his parents were trying to figure out where he is. Um, That Jesus, that bodily Jesus, the fullness of that Jesus exists now at the right hand of the Father. He ascended there. This is really, really important. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. But here's that image. Your disciple, your Peter maybe, um, and Jesus is there, he's talking to you, he's been talking to you, You're starting, it's starting to sink in, like this is real, we're not all having the kind of the same hallucination all at once, he really did come out of the grave, um, and now you're watching Jesus depart, riding on a cloud, very important detail, um, riding on a cloud until you can't see him anymore, and then angels come and make fun of you again. It's just like the thing that happens to Peter. Um, so that is the first scene I want to hold out to you. You have it in your head. I want you to hold on to it. You're going to have to have three files open in your head all at the same time this morning. Keep that file, but slide it over to the right-hand side of your brain desk. Got it? Flip over with me to Daniel chapter 7. You've got to see this. Okay. Daniel, Daniel's a weird book. There's wheels within wheels with eyeballs and all kinds of stuff going on in the book of Daniel. Um, But it's largely a series of visions that Daniel has about, ultimately about the coming of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. A whole bunch of our New Testament is grounded in, rooted in the book of Daniel, including one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself and one of Luke's favorite titles for Jesus, namely the title, Son of Jesus. Man. And it comes 
from this text. Listen to me. Listen to Daniel. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire had issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the second of those of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and give, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, so what do you have here first before we get into this next section? You have a throne and you have God and you have Somehow, we're not quite sure how yet, books are opened. Um, books, uh, I think, accord with a scroll that we're going to find in Revelation chapter five, 5. And as those books are opened, the will of God is executed in history on the earth. And what happens when his will is executed? Beasts or principalities and powers or rulers that rule against and counter to the will of God are destroyed. In other words, evil is overcome. Sin is conquered. Death is vanquished. How does that happen? Let's keep reading. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I think this text is describing the exact same scene that we saw in Acts chapter 1. Just beyond where the disciples could see. Let's go one more place in scripture so you can have another picture of this same story. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5. One of the more interesting parallels you see here is um, as with Daniel's vision in, chapter, in Daniel chapter 7, it begins with a vision of God on his throne. Fire and wheels and color and light. And in Revelation chapter 4, which immediately precedes Revelation chapter 5, you have an expanded version of the same scene. God on his throne, light, lightning, sound, thunder, all of it. And then... Um, at the very end of chapter 4, well, actually, the beginning of chapter 5, there's a book, a scroll, and a question goes out and says, who can open this book? Who, who can see the will of God, the purposes of God for earth um, um, unfurled? Who can see them actually accomplished in history? Um, how will what God wants done actually take place, actually happen? How will the inheritance come to be executed? The answer is chapter 5. 
Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth um, and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. We could spend a lot of time on Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But here's what I want to draw the connection for. You have this parallel in chapter with Daniel 7 from um, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. You have In Daniel 7, you have the one who is seated on the throne, and there's a book, and that book needs to be opened. And that book is opened, and as that book is opened, who appears but the Son of Man coming on a cloud... And through him, all the enemies of God are vanquished. And then you go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and it begins with God on his throne and a book that needs to be opened. And no one is found worthy to open that book until the Lion of Judah, who has the appearance of a slain lamb, appears. And then all heaven breaks loose. One of the best scenes in all the Bible. You have the elders who just keep falling all over themselves, falling down again and again. Um, you have them, it's, it's always translated harp. Um, D.A. Carson has made a rather compelling argument um, that the closest thing to a harp in terms of these descriptions that we have is more like a banjo. Um, and so what you have this scene break out in heaven as the son of man who is the lion of Judah, who, who is the lamb that was slain, appears um, worthy to open the scroll. And as you will, if you go on in chapter six and seven and eight and nine, all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation, um, the enemies of God are vanquished and destroyed. But what happens in chapter five is worship breaks out and all of creation begins to participate. And all of this is just on the other side of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus bodily ascends to the right hand of the Father and receives there all authority in heaven and on earth to fulfill and to complete all the purposes of God because he's the one who was slain and was raised on the third day. And through his bodily reign now at the right hand of the Father, 
All evil is being put away. Um, People from every tongue and tribe and nation are coming to worship him. All of creation itself. Um, Notice in Revelation chapter 5 that it's not just angels that are singing. Um, It's not just the um, uh, the 24 elders, which represents the church of the old covenant and the new covenant. Um, It's not um, just kind of the, the churchy people worshiping. And it's not just the angels up in heaven, of which there are myriads and myriads, which... Who knows? It seems like a lot. Um, uh, Worshipping. It's also um, the earth and the heavens and the sea and everything that is under them and over them. Such such that all of creation and and people from every tongue and tribe and nation and myriads and myriads and myriads of angels are all worshipping and participating in the, the Son of Man's renewal of everything. In other words, what we're looking at in Romans, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what we're looking at in Acts chapter 1, what we're looking at in Daniel chapter 7, it is not kind of some spiritual, emotional high um, that Jesus somehow in his mind ascended to the heavenly realm um, and his body was somehow left behind or discarded. No, what we see is the full physicality of humanity brought into the throne room of God and blessed as as the means by which God intends to renew everything such that now Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, the son of man, the cloud rider, rules with absolute and good authority over everything. The meaning of Christianity is not that you start merely thinking heavenly thoughts and feeling heavenly feels. It will just get better over time. It is the renewal of this creation, the restoration of this world, the ingathering and conquering of all the nations. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing our sins and with his blood he purchased men and women from every tongue, tribe and nation and he was raised from the dead and his body ascended into the heavens where he sits bodily enthroned forever and ever and ever and he as the angels in Acts chapter 1 said will return just the same way he came. In other words, in his body. Which, just a little side trail, which I don't have time for, but it's an amazing thing to imagine and consider. In the new creation, when everything is done, you will still be able to walk up to Jesus and talk to him. And hear his words. And maybe eat fish with him. I, evidently, he's really into fish. The new creation. <laughs> Probably knows how to cook it really well. Like, in other words, it's not like, hey, you're going to become a disembodied thing somewhere. Like floating around, like foggy. The, the picture of what 
new creation looks like, where Jesus is taking all of this right now, is not less physical and less um, fullness of life and less bodily, but more rich, more full, more bodily, a a thicker description of reality. If you've never read The Great Divorce, one of the... Um, it's a book written by C.S. Lewis. It's an essay uh, about um, some hell dwellers who get to take a vacation and visit heaven. And they hate it. They absolutely hate it because they're kind of uh, foggy, ghostly. In fact, he refers to them as ghosts throughout the book. Um, and they go up to heaven and heaven is thicker, richer, fuller. They, they have a hard time walking on the grass because the grass is more firm than they are um, and it pierces their feet. Um, water droplets uh, in, in heaven um, could crush them <laughs> because it's thick and rich and full. Now what does all of that have to do with now and what are some of the theological implications of it? I want to briefly touch on these and I promise we're going to come back to them in the coming weeks. So, the first is you have to account for just the sheer authority of Jesus and what that authority means as it, is, as it unfolds. In Daniel's vision and in the book of Revelation, um, the, the very first thing it means as Jesus is exalted bodily to the right hand of the Father is he brings about a judgment against Jerusalem. We don't have a ton of time to talk about um, why that's so massively important. Except to say that, that Jesus actually brings an end to the first age and brings about a new age, a new age that's now broken free from um, the temple and the entrapments of, uh, of what had become, um, become really idolatrous in Jerusalem and around the temple. Um, Jesus exalts, is exalted to the right hand of the Father, um, and a large portion of the book of Revelation is simply about um, the judgment of God coming against that city for killing Jesus and rejecting God. In other words, Jesus' bodily rule now has real historical consequences for how history goes. And oftentimes, it's not like happy, happy, joy, joy. Jesus actually judges nations now in ways that have historical and political and economic ramifications now. The abortion bills being passed in our state are not just unfortunate political events. They should cause us to tremble with terror. Lest Jesus begin to judge us for murdering millions of ch- millions of children in the way that he decided to de- destroy Jerusalem. So Jesus has been handed the Son of Man, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah has been handed all authority in heaven and on earth and he even now has begun to execute the judgments of God on the earth. Evil will not persist forever. 
there will come a day, in fact, there comes many days in which the Son of Man says enough. First theological point. Second. It it is important to see that Jesus as our representative, as the one that we are bound to. It's interesting, um, if you consider the two sacraments given to the church, the, the, the bread and the wine and baptism, both of them at the very heart of what they are, are a uniting of a person with Jesus. It says, um, as we baptize someone, that you're united with Jesus in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We, we are bound up to Jesus. And we eat and drink bread and wine um, as a part of our union with Jesus, such that where he is, so are you. Um, such as, what he's done, he's done to you. Um, so so um, the, the reason why that union matters, the reason why we practice that union, we're reminded of that union, we participate in that union week in and week out, um, is because as he died for our sins, it's very, very important. It's of paramount importance that you recognize by faith um, and, and, and not just in your head, but actually participating in eating and drinking and, and remembering our baptism, um, that you, you are reminded that as Jesus died for your sins, you died. One of the, maybe one of the best lines ever preached in this church, not by me, um, as a man said, when, um, when you're confronted with your sin, you are free to confess it and acknowledge it Um, Because you can say, I have already died. I've died in Christ. I was buried with him. Um, So I can confess my sins. I can own my sins. I can repent of my sins. Because Jesus died for my sins. And in his death, I died. But guess what also? In his resurrection, you and I were raised. And here we get to the ascension. And in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, you, in fact, ascended to the right hand of the Father. There is no part of your life that is not lived before the face of God. Yes, sin will not persist forever. But if you consider what Christianity or what Christian spirituality looks like to be something kind of going on in your heart or in your motives or or merely in your head and not as it pertains to how you do everything. You haven't understood the heart of Christianity. God in his redemption of us as he raises us one day um, from the dead um, is not raising us so that we'll get away from having to eat and drink and sleep um, and and all of the normal stuff of life. Um, He is in fact redeeming and renewing that stuff. He's not whisking you off to a world where there's no work to be done because there's nothing physical. No, he's whisking you off um, um, to renew this world, to, to renew the kind of work you do now. Jesus was 
bodily raised, um, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means every single part of this physical life, how you speak and how you eat and how you spend money um, and how you treat your neighbors and how you speak and talk to your spouse, every single word, um, and, and, and the kind of work that you do. Do you do it diligently as unto the Lord? Or are you just kind of biding your time, waiting and hoping for a world where you don't have to talk to people and you don't have to do um, work and you don't have to eat and you don't have to drink and you don't have to sleep? And then, then you've misunderstood the meaning of salvation. He is redeeming all of it. In fact, has redeemed all of it. Sin will be put away. Death will be no more. God is not freeing us from some sort of shackled physical life. He's renewing it and restoring it. Which injects meaning into everything you do right now. Last point. It is beautiful that the one who ascended to the Father is one who has the appearance of a lamb standing as if slain. Here's why it's beautiful. Because forever and ever and ever and ever and ever the blood of Jesus stands before the throne You never appear before God without the blood right there. Did you screw up this week? Husbands, did you speak a harsh, cruel word to your wife this week? Parents, did you neglect your kids this week? Were you lazy or did you do neglect something in order to just work too much? Is your heart filled with lust? The the glory of the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus is that you never appear before the face of God without the blood before the face of God. If it was just you or me, could we stand before God on on our own merits, on our own accomplishments of holiness this week? No. But you don't have to. Because standing with you is the lamb who was slain always and forever, forever and ever and ever and ever, a million years from now, you stand before God with the blood of the Lamb. You never have to stand alone. Jesus bore your sins. And there is a testimony before the Father that will never dry up, it will never be cleaned up, it will never be forgotten. The blood will always be before the face of the Father. Let's pray and prepare for communion. So Father, we come to this table again, invited here, commanded even by by your Son to come here as often as we gather together. To eat, to consume, to be united with again real bread 
that binds us by faith to the very real body of Christ. That we come again to drink this wine, which by faith, once again, binds us to the very real blood of the Lamb. So may we eat and may we drink as those whose bodies matter, whose life in this world matters because Jesus bodily ascended to the right hand of the Father. In your name we pray, amen.